Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. In this episode, we have Jesse Cruikshank, a neuroecclesiologist. She has a master's from Harvard in mind, brain, and education. And we have an amazing conversation that spans faith and trust in God, roller derby, MMA, and brain science. I know you're going to enjoy it. So let's get to the conversation. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast. I am really excited to have you here uh, and to hear your journey, to hear your stories about how we can impact uh, the world around us. Um, and usually through our journeys, we start to learn and we start to grow and we start to realize that there is uh, there is a story to be had. Uh, Jesus is a... He's a storyteller, and he uses our stories to impact others. Um, and so I just wanted to to start with uh, a significant experience that you've had with Jesus that has shaped you before. Is there something that has really shaped you from Jesus? I mean, that's that's my whole <laughs> life, right? I gave my life to the Lord when I was three, and mm. I have Jesus has been part of my understanding and worldview and he he's been present for the whole journey. I think maybe the earliest that I can articulate, maybe the youngest I was, um, is that when I was um, a teenager, when I was about 13, I grew up in a home uh, with an abusive brother. Mm. He was uh, he's bipolar and he was physically abusive. And um, I have a younger sister. I have a disabled mother. And I kind of stepped into this place of codependent savior. I mean, yeah. I'm an Enneagram eight. So I kind of stepped into this um, position of taking care of everybody and defending everybody. Mm. And um, given the dynamics of the counseling that we would go to as a family, like they would leave me in the waiting room while they took all the rest of my family in for family counseling, because wow. I wasn't exhibiting any behavior. I wasn't acting out. Um, my sister, you know, was very vocal about her <laughs> struggle with my brother and I, I absorbed everything. Wow. And so, so nobody gave no, like they completely ignored me in the family counseling because I was fine. <laughs> yeah. And so I just kind of carried all of that weight from the age of six. Um, I carried all of that weight myself. And wow. then so about 13, by the time I became, I was about 13, I became suicidal. And I remember I was um, getting ready to attempt suicide. And the Lord said to me very clearly, 
to my heart. He said, you have some choices here. And I was like, yeah, I can kill myself. I can go crazy. Like just let it all go. Yeah, That seemed like a pretty viable option. Um, and the Lord said, yeah, or you could let me carry you. <laughs> and so obviously I'm here and I'm not crazy. I mean, honestly. <laughs> um, and so just hearing wow. him speak to me in that moment saved my life. And that was probably the earliest encounter like that. I've wow. had many others since then where that were profound that changed the direction of my life um that saved my life you know i'm married because of the lord slapping me across, <laughs> upside the head and saying no really this is the person for you wow. and i'm like are you sure god <laughs> this is not what i pick for myself and he's like you don't know what you need i know what you need you know so so since then i have a lot i have a lot i have yeah, 30 years of encounters with Jesus that mm. have, have been profound and significant. But that was the earliest one. Yeah, it, it makes it absolutely real that Jesus is going to carry you. He's going to carry you through uh, when you're encountering him in a life or death situation. He says, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to carry you. And, you know, you can see as evidenced by your life, uh, he's been carrying you for a long time um, and encountering you. And I think, you know, part of what you've just articulated is probably the need or the desire to show communities and people in communities to be able to carry one another uh, through Jesus uh, and get to a place of um, outward focus, uh, maybe some risk-taking, uh, but doing it together as a community. Um, and so you, I mean, you've started out uh, in wilderness ministry um, and you've done a lot of just going up into the mountains. Do you think part of your your transformative experience with Jesus and him carrying you actually influenced you in that direction? Um, absolutely. I Given that church wasn't exactly a safe place for me, I mean, it was when I was small, you know, um, under the age of eight. But then as I was older, it wasn't. Um, we actually ended up getting kicked out of that church. <laughs> we just weren't good members of that denomination. I'm a, I'm much better four square. Let's just put it that way. I'm a female <laughs> called to leadership in ministry. And that didn't that church didn't believe in that as well as other things. And so... To you know, so to me, I didn't encounter God in church. Um, I encountered God in nature. Um, I encountered, and so it was a it was a place of abiding for me. Um, I was very young when I fell in love with uh, Romans one twenty, and mm-hmm. just that the the invisible qualities of God are made manifest in nature. And theologians call nature the first revelation, the first revelation of God. Yeah. Um, Scripture is the second revelation of God, the Torah, if you will. And then Jesus is the third complete revelation of who God is. But nature is in the list with Jesus in the Bible um, as the the lower version, you know. Um, yeah. But God himself to me out there 
he's taught me so much about who he is and how he thinks about us and how he treats us and how he grows us um, through nature um, so, because it's uninterpreted. It doesn't go through a human, you know, a human interpretation. Like it just speaks itself. And um, yeah, there's something a little more pure in that for me, especially when I have questions and I can't sort through the different theologies or the different yeah. understandings. I'll just go back to the how he created stuff and see what that speaks to and see how that helps clarify or illuminate. So but yeah, the wilderness stuff is the best. <laughs> I mean, it's great to go back into nature. And how does that speak to your heart? As somebody who focuses on the head a lot, um, but you you live from the heart and you focus on the, the head and the brain. And so nature, I think, hits you uh, in your heart muscle. So how does that, that interplay between the head and the heart uh, within nature and the wilderness play out? Yeah, I would say I'm probably a bit different of a neuroecclesiologist, a neuroscientist person in that I want my head to serve my heart. My heart and my personhood doesn't serve my head. Mm -hmm. um, my head serves my personhood and um, is the way that it, it comes up with the final uh, art articulation. You know, it's like yeah. the marketing department at the end that makes everything <laughs> um, packaged well and sound good. Um, but it really does serve my heart and and my soul. You know, when I'm anxious or I'm having a difficult time just in life, I can go into nature and I can allow. Um, I mean, I know other people call it the frequency, but I can feel it like I can feel mm. when I'm out there. Um, I don't know. Energy frequency. I don't know. Presence of God is what I always called it. Yeah. Uh, and, and it grounds me and it calms me. And even, even if I've been having a very hard time, I can spend a day and I find my anchoring again. And I find my, it, it just, yeah, it grounds me. It brings me back down. And, and I hear the Lord say, I take care of this tree. I take care of this flower. I take care of this bird. I'm taking care of you. Like it changes the pace of my, um, my thought patterns, you know, the, yep. the way that the wind blows through the trees, the way that the clouds move across the sky, mm. it changes the pace of my heart rate. It changes the pace of my soul. And if I, as I lean into the, the rhythm of life, the slowness, the breathing, you know, there's a, it, it just calms me down, helps me hear the Lord and, and actually causes me to feel very valued. I know sometimes people can go into the nature and the wilderness and they feel lost in the vastness of it. Hmm. Um, but because Jesus is always very present with me, it actually makes me feel very special hmm. that in the vastness of creation, he's this close to me. Yeah. So, exactly. yeah. So that's how, that's how the interplay is. And then as I, as I let my body and my soul and my heart move to be more where that uh, pace of nature is, then my mind is calmer and it serves my soul better. Yeah, I think I've had some of my most profound experiences with God in nature. 
um, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, if I wasn't in the mountains or, you know, in the forests or it wasn't by the stream, I was lost. Um, so it was something where I was able to see God. If I have questions, if I really want to, to seek him, uh, that's the first place I'm going to go. I'm going to go out in nature. I'm going to be with him in creation. Um, and that's the place where I find rest for my soul. Um, and rest is really important. And I think there's a lot of, you know, for me in my, in my day job of, of coaching and training missionaries around the world um, and being a missionary myself, uh, we are really good at working and we're really good about doing and we're really good about pressing, you know, on. We're going to run the race we're taking a hold of it. Those, are the, These are all the things that we take hold of, right? And we don't often think about rest um, uh, as a way of uh, – it's not just rejuvenation. I think there's life in it that can multiply out to others. Um, what is that? this rest and why is it important? Yeah, for – you know – being a wilderness guide and and doing the wilderness ministry um, that that I did, you can hike hard and you can train hard and you can, I mean, I would carry a hundred pound pack for miles and miles across uh, no trail, no, no trail terrain. And your body has a limit. And part of being in nature demonstrates that reminds you you're very (laughs) confronted with your limitations Mm -hmm. your limitations for heat cold hunger strength you know what your body can do and what your body can't um and it's in embracing those limitations that i think we find our actual rest rest isn't just physically stopping but remembering that we're mortal and remembering that there's only so much we can do and God created us that way on purpose and called it good. Hmm. So why, why can't I join him in that place where he created us to have limitations and need rest and called it good. Wow. Um, so, so the paradigm of embracing my limitations. So there's physically, you know, then the expedition stuff, it's also relationally, you, you embrace your limitations of your talents and your skills hmm. and you let other people journey with you and how you need them. So if you can't, I mean, the, the embracing the fact that you need is huge for me. I need other people. I need rest. I need care. And if we can't embrace our needs and our physical being, I think that also demonstrates how severely limited we are embracing our needs in our relationship or in our, our ministry assignment. Like, like we learn it in our body first and we embrace it, learn to embrace it there as children. And then we're supposed to, you know, use that same, um, I am limited and I am good. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I am created with need and that's not a fault. That's not a character flaw. Uh, then we can carry that into other aspects of our life, but we're confronted bodily first. Well, as as somebody growing up in a western context in a western culture as you know in america hey if you make a mistake you have to pick yourself back up your bootstraps individually i have to go and i have to do this work um we have our solo entrepreneurs or our solo pioneers as our heroes in the west 
And you're talking about articulating need to one another. Um, how how can we how can we shift our culture uh, in the West to be able to articulate the need and work together, and not just go for it as a solo individual? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, I come from Wyoming, the land <laughs> of the grumpy pioneer. You know, you know, the movie The Revenant was made about Hugh Glass, and it's like I grew up hearing stories about him. Wow. Like those, and the movie even toned down what he did. Like what happened to him and what he survived was even more intense than the movie. Okay. So, so like, that's the culture that I was raised in. Like every, that was the definition of toughness Mm -hmm. that I was raised with and embodied. Like, like, let me be clear. Like I, I articulate this now because I've learned these lessons Mm -hmm. um, the hard way. I when I was early in ministry, I taught people to be workaholics. I worked 70, 80 hours a week in five months a year in the guiding season, like 24 hours a day, because I managed evacuations and incidents. And those always, you know, happen in the middle of the night that they call you. So, yeah. So I always haven't lived here. I've had to learn this and change and change my own internal culture. Um, And that one of the things that I had to learn was my definition of success in that success wasn't, um, wasn't for me solo success has to be Mm. a group thing. Success is uh, relational, not task, right? So it's not that we accomplish the task, but are we the people of God with one another? Like that's Mm -hmm. definition of success. Now you can do that and then you can have a high performance team and still run at a million miles an hour. So then the other lesson that, that fun. I had, I want to do that. I know it is so <laughs> fun. Um, but I had to, I had to find a new way of relating with myself in the place of need and then in the place of pain. Mm-hmm. So growing up in the home that I did, I actually made a covenant with pain. <laughs> and I, because I experienced so much pain in my childhood, I decided and agreed with that pain let me know I was alive. Pain mm. was my friend. Pain, um, pain protected me. Yeah. Um, you know, and so then there's like Roadhouse, you know, pain don't hurt. And, um, you know, other movies that say life is pain. You just get used to it. And I was like, that's true. I just embrace that as the fullness of yeah. truth. Yep. And then I come into a season of life where I don't have pain anymore. Mm. And um, this was after I retired from the <laughs> wilderness <laughs> ministry and I started um, working in the denomination and I like had a decent house and I had a great bed and I had two bathrooms, you know, like it was like, I felt <laughs> like life was luxurious. And then I started having these ideas that I was going to die young hmm. and I, like it was starting, it, it became um, very regular that I was having those thoughts like, oh man, my life is, must be over. And, wow. you know, I think I'm going to die. And as I unpacked that with my therapist, um, realizing then that I had made this covenant with pain and without pain, I didn't know how to have life. Wow. And so wow. thus the lack of pain caused me to think I was going to have a lack of life. So, you know, we, we do these things in our coping mechanisms where we partner with the thing in order for to not be scared with a scared yeah. of it, but then we end up not knowing how to live life without that, 
right? So um, if we're looking for approval, if we're workaholic, if we're looking for finances, like I think all of those, you know, look, I think there is pain. I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid right. of pain, <laughs> but, but I had made too close of a bond with pain and I'd mm-hmm. given it too much authority. And so I think our workaholism and that solo entrepreneurial kind of dynamic, you know, we've, we've bonded too closely with the things in our life in order to not be afraid of them. Um, and so those are things, those are, we need, like we yeah. all need therapy and I believe in therapy <laughs> and I think we are better humans and better Christians and better Jesus followers uh, by doing that. So, so unpacking that. And then the second, then this last phase, the last few years has been embracing my need and not being transactional in mm. getting my needs met, which is totally what I go to. Like I'll trade for yeah. my need. Like, Hey baby, like I'll tell my husband, Hey baby, I need um, some stuff from the grocery store. You know, I'll do the dishes for you. If you'll wow. go to the grocery store for me. Like <laughs> I, I thought that was good partnership until yeah, recently. And I'm like, wow, I am so uncomfortable with the fact that I need um, that. I don't know how to deal with that. So I don't know how to just let like a, mm-hmm. like a child just be hungry yeah. and say, I need food. And they give you nothing back for giving them food. Mm. Like they may not even stop crying. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's so hard so. when you have to try and prove your worth to others to get them to do something for you. Um, and to know, uh, hopefully you know that you're valued and you have worth um, without that. And Jesus calls you worthy. Um, he calls you his beloved daughter. He, he knows you. He sees you. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure your husband knows you and sees you and loves you. And it's calling you worthy without a transaction. He doesn't need you to do the dishes for him. It's nice to do the dishes, but he doesn't need you. He wants to go do something for you. Um, and I think that's a beautiful um, thing that you just came to realize uh, here. And I think that could be transformative, uh, you know, absolutely transformative as you move forward. Yeah. And so I think we end up alone out of coping and out of, um, yeah, just having a having, we don't love our soul as much as Jesus loves our soul mm-hmm. and we need to, we need to be with him there. So that wow. involves embracing our, and knowing that our boundaries are temporary. And then when we're, we're around people, then they're supposed to get a little squishy, not totally go away, but soften up so that we can join with other people. We don't know how to join with other people. We think we're just supposed to either lead or do it ourselves. Yep. And that lives a very transactional life because to join is to compromise, to join is to be influenced by. And that requires a lot of faith and trust in God. Wow. And um, we're not very good at that. Yeah. Can we get better? Like, how can we get I hope better? So. At that? I feel like I'm getting better. <laughs> You're getting better. I can see it. And just telling your story. Um, and so, uh, you know, speaking of pain, and going through pain, you went through pain in the wilderness, but you also did roller derby, I think, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And, I did and roller derby and MMA. I and MMA. MMA and there's lots of pain in both of those things. <laughs> yeah, that was before I, ha- I like had the revelation <laughs> about pain in my life. <laughs> uh, 
That's good. What did you What did you learn in the in the midst of? I mean, roller derby is fascinating to me. I mean, I haven't had much experience with it. I mean, the the most experience I think is watching that Drew Barrymore movie, Whip It, right? Um, yeah, which is a cool movie. It's great. You should all yeah. watch watch this roller derby movie. But uh, what was it like in the midst of that? What did you learn from your experience? Yeah, that's where I learned a lot about that joining factor. So I. I was still doing the wilderness ministry and I was a pastor, a discipleship pastor at my church. Um, and, uh, okay. So there needs to be just a tiny bit of context. So okay. I was, I was training in an MMA gym and I was applied to grad school and I needed some sort of goal. So I applied to Harvard grad school, um, for neuroscience. And I had decided that if I Low didn't bar. get into grad school, Low bar. <laughs> right. If I didn't get into grad school, then I would, then I would do a fight. I would do a cage fight. Um, local guys, like we're, we're talking about super small potatoes in Laramie, Wyoming. Okay. Like let's not, let's not overestimate justice. Hey, that's where rugged individualized individualism comes in. And so I don't know if that's just small potatoes, like Wyoming. Yes. You're still getting hit in the face, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I was training to fight. Um, I got into grad school. I go away uh, to grad school. And then when I come back from grad school, the MMA gym is closed. Mm. Um, my husband, who is a very uh, non-touching kind of guy, he was a swimmer because it was a sport you didn't touch anybody in. <laughs> um, he He doesn't like he has a hard time sometimes dealing with my innate energy slash aggression. And so he takes me, we get in the car one day, he drives to the, this gym and he drops me off at roller derby practice. He's already got skates for me. And he's like, you're doing this now. I'm tired of you hitting me. I'm tired of you trying to wrestle with me. Like you are doing this. So I was pushed into roller derby at the age of 30. I'd never skated before. Um, and I just started doing it to have to have an outlet for <laughs> all of my energies. And the it's a very interesting culture, um, roller derby. It's like hmm. uh, a PG-13 kind of culture. Yeah. Um, you should experience it. You should check it out. But it's very empowering to women who are often overlooked in so many other ways. Um, there are women who are very physically adept on skates that you, if you looked at them, you would be surprised and you would not think of them as an athlete. You would not think of them as physically adept. They're usually larger. Um, but on skates, then they're like amazing. And I, I was a small mediocre roller derby player. (laughs) So I got beat up all the time. And I loved that. Um, I, it was my first team sport and just being part of that culture. I didn't tell him I was a pastor. I ended up getting outed like two years in, um, cause I just wanted to learn how to play and skate. Yeah. And I just, I fell in love with these girls. I <laughs> fell in love with, um, man, they have hard lives. It's very blue collar. It's a very blue collar sport. Yeah. Um, the, a lot of them are in unhealthy relationships or come from unhealthy backgrounds. Like, <laughs> like it's real, it's raw. And I just loved these girls. And I, I ended up becoming part of them, like, like joining them in that space. 
And and so I didn't try to evangelize. I didn't try to tell anybody about Jesus. I was totally just incognito, um, wanting to be off, you know, have a space where I was off. Okay. So they find out I'm a pastor and they're like, wait a minute, you cuss. And I said, (laughs) (laughs) yes, I do. Jesus and I talked about it. No, this is really how I talked to said to them. I said, Jesus and I talked about it and I can totally cuss, but I'm not allowed to think any negative thoughts about any of you. Cause I mm. did at one time, like this girl skated by and I was like, I don't like her. And the Holy spirit was like, no, you don't get to do that. Wow. Well, that girl ended up living in my basement for mm. a year. Wow. And, um, just supported her while she ended up getting an, a job on the East coast and moving. I did another, uh, I did a, a, a heterosexual wedding, mm-hmm. um, for some of the girls. And it was after, because I'd spent two years joining them and loving them and becoming part of them um, and letting them, you know, have an impact on me, you know, then I was able to have an impact on them. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had no agenda there, but I, I found that my prayers changed. Like I wasn't transactional with God about him saving them or changing their life. Like I, they were part of my heart and my soul and I prayed differently for them. So that's where that in being influenced by and having squishy edges. Um, yeah, that's why I learned that lesson. And I know, I know that my prayers landed different. My prayers carried a different power because they were out of love, not out of judgment. Yeah, that's huge. We have to figure out a way to not be transactional in our way of professing Jesus towards one another. We have to be real has to come from the things that Jesus did in us and through us so that we could actually impact somebody else's life um, to have them live in our basement or to, you know, sit with people and see where they're at and be a friend. And out of that friendship, Jesus comes and Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit's in there in the midst and is speaking and we're listening to the Holy Spirit as we're having conversations with people and he's telling us what to say, um, that he's saying, hey, you know, don't, you can't have negative thoughts about these people. You have to learn to love them. Um, he's saying, oh, this person's struggling with such and such. So here, this is how you're going to comfort and this is how you're going to be with somebody. How do we figure out a way to not have a savior complex? Uh, as we go into communities, because we often have the savior complex. We think it's our job to do it, and it isn't, right? John six forty four says that nobody can come to uh, me unless the Father has sent me draws them. Like, nobody can do it. We can't make people come to Jesus like the Father's doing it and drawing it, and we're looking for people who are open. But how do we stop having that savior complex in the midst of these situations? Yeah, I you know— I mean, that's an interesting question because I think it, there are a few prongs to it. So if you're Christian, I mean, think about what would it take for someone to come and convert you to Islam? Mm-hmm. You know, like. It would take how, quite a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So why would that be true? Why wouldn't that same dynamic be true if you're trying to lead somebody to Jesus? Mm-hmm. I mean, you need you need to think about what it would take to to have somebody that you would trust enough to speak into your life, to shape your life like that. You know, yeah. maybe 
you would you would need to be already kind of moving towards that, right? There's mm-hmm. there's the the other religions that are the hard sell. The other religions you're like, you know, maybe I would be willing to right. to hear a little more about that. So kind of think about from I mean, you are a person, <laughs> and you don't necessarily live your life that much differently than other people in the way that you make decisions like that. So so think about what it would take for you to be compelled, and then you know, remember it's going to take that much relationship and, and worth. And, and you want to know that somebody loves you and sees Mm -hmm. you, you know, you're not going to just, I mean, look at all the other things people are trying to sell you. What does it take to get your attention on that? Yep. Right. So you don't want Christianity to be a multi-level marketing scheme where they come and they hand you a (laughs) track and then they lead you to Jesus. And then you come to the church and now they want more of your money. Like, like who that's awful. Right. That is awful. But I've seen that happen. Hard. I've seen that happen, but it is awful. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it happen too. Um, but to to get rid of our savior complex means that we actually have to trust Jesus, hmm. right? We have to trust Jesus is the truth. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit is leading, is poured out on all flesh, leading all people into truth. Wow. And that God actually like is sovereign and has a plan. And that requires a lot of trust. Because you've yeah. got to trust each part of the Trinity to carry their part and not try to do any one part of the Trinity's part. So you may trust the Holy Spirit, but you don't trust God. And so you come with your own agenda. Wow. Right? Yeah. You may, yeah, we often you, do. You may trust God's plan, but you don't trust the blood of Jesus is enough. And you have to defend him in yeah. his truth. You have to then be the carrier of truth and because, you know, you just don't have that much confidence and you haven't, you haven't learned <laughs> that trust that the cross is enough, that Jesus is enough to defend himself. Mm. Um, so it's not that we're leaving truth. We're just trusting the Trinity to carry out the different work that they do. Um, yeah, so that's a whole lot of faith. And we have to be growing in our trust in each part of the Trinity and laying it down because the enemy always wants to talk us into picking that up, right? That's, that is the con from the garden. That is the con from the beginning of time is, Hey, you know what? Why don't you pick up this part? Why don't you pick up this burden? Wow. And so a faith to run around as three-year-olds naked in a garden, not knowing the difference between right Mm. and wrong. Like that's, it's just a lifelong slash eternal journey. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Running around naked. Yeah. My three-year-old likes to run around naked. He's good. He tried to do that. We had, we had a family with three young girls over for dinner a couple nights ago. And I had to go give Luke a bath, and uh, he was naked. And he goes, wait, I want to go say goodbye to everybody. So he tried to run out of the bathroom naked and run towards the girls. I was like, stop, you got to put some clothes on. But that's the, just the the openness and the trust and the faith that he has as a three-year-old. Like, this is me. This is who I am, right. you know? It's a shame-free life. Yeah. Oh, man, and I wish I had that, that. I know, right? But I think that is God's goal for us. Is mm-hmm. to get us to a shame-free life, and it, and any part that we have of trying to do that on our own, or 
you know, some people actually don't even have a value for that. They have a value for shaming. Mm. Um, They think that shame compels us to God, Mm. right? There's theologies that that teach that. Um, So a shame-free life is God's goal. And if we live that, what greater example of the value of the blood of Jesus could there be? What greater witness could there be to a world Mm. than a shame-free life? Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, are there things, I mean, you've called yourself a neuroecclesiologist. I think you may be the only one out there. I am. I came up with the name. <laughs> <laughs> so so if you're the only one out there, you came up with the name. What does that mean, Jesse, neuroecclesiologist? <laughs> um, it means that I want to use the way that God designed us and created us mm-hmm. to help the church be better. Um so I think about I think about all the aspects that that is how we're our communities of faith how we're discipling the systems the organization the way that the way that we scale um, how the witness that we are I think about all of those and then how what is it what is it about the way God created us that helps us know how to do that better Yeah because um, I don't think that God created us wrong. Yeah, correct. So what are yeah. what are what is it that God is okay with that we're not okay with? Hmm. Right? God is okay that we are three year olds in the kingdom running around naked to say yeah. goodbye to everybody. Yeah. So so what is it in, in us that that looks at that and judges it and says it's wrong or there's something yeah. wrong about it? Um so biology and the Bible are kind of my two guardrails for how to live and be in this world. And I hmm. and I I feel called as a missionary to the church. I want to save Christians for Jesus. Wow. Wow. So. That, I mean, yeah, let's do it. Let's save Christians for Jesus. I mean, because I got that, saved for Jesus later on in my life. You yeah. know, like I have mentors who have poured into me and taught me amazing lessons. Um, so I just want to pass those along and you know, share the revelation I've been given. I think that's yeah, and those those do. older mentors, I think, is what you were talking about with faith and trust and trusting God to do things. Um, I think the people that have the most influence and impact in my life are the ones that are grounded and trust God to do the work, and they're not. I don't feel like it's a transactional relationship with them. Um, in my relationship, they're just letting their groundedness roots me in the love of the Father. Um, and if I can, you know, I could do that for others, then, man, I would be be so happy because I want to be gr- grounded and rooted in the love of the Father, be able to trust Him completely, to have that faith. Is there anything in your, in your research and anything through brain science that you have found that can, can help us? Um. I mean, yeah, a lot, right? Because change happens in the brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, a couple of things that I think the the may game, are game changers, I think, for a Western Christian. Um, one is that your brain lies to you and mm-hmm. you can't trust it like that it's that it's seeking truth. The brain doesn't seek truth. Mm-hmm. The brain seeks to uh seeks identity and then to protect that identity. Because if your brain sought truth, then it wouldn't handle disruption and disorientation so poorly. Um, So your brain doesn't like to change. It just wants to maintain what it believes and hangs and hangs on to. And that's identity related. Um, So your heart, your heart seeks belonging. 
And um, both of them are fallen and both of them are redeemable. So it's not that we, you know, lean into our brain and distrust our heart. Don't do Mm -hmm. that. God doesn't do that. Don't do that. Um, And that, or that we poo poo our heart and just try to redeem our mind. So both of them are equally trustworthy. Yeah. Both of them need redeemed just because you have a thought in your head doesn't mean it's true. (laughs) Mm. Just because you had an epiphany actually doesn't mean it's true. Mm. So we need to hold our thoughts loosely, let them, you know, hold them up to God and and let him judge them. I think there's some scriptures about that. Um, Hold up our heart (laughs) to God and let him sort through that and then trust them on the other side trust the parts that he's redeemed, right? We trust the revelation. Mm. Why can't we trust the parts of our heart that have also come through the fire and are redeemed? So as a neuroscientist, I will tell you that your brain lies to you. You have a whole part of your brain <laughs> dedicated to lying to you. Oh, thanks. Okay. That sounds, yeah. sounds great right to here, me. All right. The left temporal lobe. Okay. <laughs> so he create. okay. So, and here's the thing. God created us with that part of our brain. Yeah. Because it's meant to protect identity. Mm. So the reason why is to help us, we we hold ourselves, we behold God, we let God inform our identity, Jesus shape our identity. And then there's yeah. a mechanism to help protect that, right? Mm-hmm. It's just our self-righteousness that gets us in trouble there. Um, <laughs> just our self-righteousness. That's it. So as a neuroscientist, I would say that. I would also say then as a neuroscientist that you... The way that you give burden over to God and the way that you have your relationship with God, the way that you treat yourself, the way that you, that intimate relationship that you have with yourself and God is the foundation and the, and the, the, the same way you treat others. So you're mm-hmm. not going to treat other people differently than you treat yourself. Mm-hmm. You're not going to believe in yourself differently than the way you think God believes in you. And so doing the personal internal work completely changes the witness that we are to the world. Yeah. And so, so do it, go to therapy, <laughs> everybody, you know, whether that's once a month, once every three months, every week, I don't, you know, whatever, but do the internal work because it does change who we are in the world. And it gives the enemy less stronghold in our soul. Yeah. I mean, as we're doing this work, it, what it seems to me is to, to let him form and shape our identity. And as we're rooted and formed and shaped in our identity, we can start to help others discover what their identity is as well. Um, Yeah. Free people, free people. mm, Yeah. Free people bring an atmosphere of freedom. Free people who live shame-free lives create shame-free spaces and they help others work their way towards living the shame-free life. So I know we usually focus on that hurt people, hurt people, and that's yeah. totally true, but I like to focus on, you know, the, the positive goal mm. <laughs> and that is to be free so I can help others feel freedom. And then Jesus walks them there. Right. I mean, I know I'm not, I, I'm a, I know my boundaries. I, I try to live without codependency. I try not to have a savior complex anymore because yeah. that was most of my life. I lived there. Mm. Um, I was pretty bad at it, just by the way. I taught people <laughs> bad things. 
All right. Yeah, you could ask for forgiveness right now. That's good. I, I, well, you know, if you're one of those people hearing this and you know that I screwed you up, know that I screwed you up. And I know that. And yeah, I repent for that. Lord Jesus, have mercy on both of us and may he redeem your soul from all of the things I did. <laughs> Amen. Um, I mean, you're talking about personal work and doing that personal work of identity and spending that time to knowing ourselves, loving ourselves the way that that Christ loves us. Um, there's a, I know that there is an element of being formed and shaped within community that is important as well um, to lead us towards Jesus. What does that look like? Yeah, it's fascinating that, I mean, we're a social animal. We are a social creature. We're a herd creature. And the way God created us is that we the way we know ourselves is the way we know others and that others then are that mirror and, and, and reflect and mm -hmm. help us know ourselves better. And in all of that, God has lots of different avenues to speak to us. Cause I don't know if you know this, but God is like a really abstract thing, yeah. right? God is, God is this yeah. abstract ness and we are children who need something that's concrete, mm -hmm. right? We need, we need the cross. We need Jesus. We need yep. God to write things down that are important and call it, you know, scripture. Yep. So we need these concrete anchors. And one of those is community. Hmm. Community is the is a witness to us. Uh, and character is also only shaped in community. Our character is not shaped in our prayer closet. Shame, hmm. shame is a social emotion. Shame is not healed in your prayer closet. Shame is only healed when the brokenness is seen by another and you are still accepted and loved. Wow. So communities are created to heal the curse of the fall. Hmm. Wow. Think about that. Christian faith communities who are who have been, you know, we, we receive the blood of Jesus, we get that pardon and that there's no there's no penalty for sin anymore. Okay. Yep. There's no cosmic penalty for sin because of the cross. And I believe that. And I know people are going to think, but wait, what? But trust me here and look it up in the Bible. Read Galatians. So that flattens it out. But we still have then the, the pain in our bodies and in our souls in our fallen nature of shame. And that is only healed in this faith community by reminding each other of our identity, mm. by reminding each other of what the cross did, by by being with Jesus and Jesus filling all of us together. Wow. That's how we're her, his body that actually like has he, his DNA. Wow. That's beautiful. And I think that we should all all hear that, take that to heart and continue to to live that out. And uh to try and be these free people that can free people within community and help uh, foster community like that. Um, and that could only be done, uh, yeah, in probably smaller groups and, you know, in something in these situations where we have acceptance and wholeness and freedom within a community. So hear that, live it out. Jesse, thank you. I have a couple questions that I'd love to ask at the end. Um, so one thing is, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were 21, something that you know now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? Man, just breathe. <laughs> <laughs> just breathe more. 
slow down. You know, it's not, it's not a test, Mm. right? It's not whether or not you get something right or wrong or make the right decision. Um, Yeah. Mm. Just, just breathe a little better. I was super hard. I was super like tight fisted clench, (laughs) you know, ah, stressed out at 21. Oh, that's good. Uh, Good. And then the last thing, have you read or watched anything recently that you would recommend? Oh, geez. I, I'm, I'm reading regularly, um, and watching stuff. Um, wow. What, what audience am I recommending this to? Any audience, (laughs) anything. So it it could be anything. It does like, what is make you, made you come alive that is you've resonated with, Mm -hmm. uh, that you could recommend to others. Okay. So one sort of non-spiritual and one spiritual thing. Okay. Um, There you go. We'll do, we'll do, uh, watched. So I really enjoyed WandaVision, um, and just the journey and the reality of, of, of facing trauma and, and and all the ways that we deal with that. Yeah. It's so powerful. It was just an incredible thing to see and watch a grief journey. Oh, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And then the other is the chosen. Mm-hmm. I, that is the first Christian thing that I have ever recommended or handed to a non-Christian. Wow. Usually yeah. they're either too spiritual or too cardboard for me. They're too woo-woo-y, mamby-pamby, or they're too shallow. Yeah. And the Jesus that I know is cooler than that, more accessible than that, and actually yep. more pithy than that. And so I really have liked The Chosen. I actually cried like every episode (laughs) because I'm like, this is the Jesus I know. And so it's the first Christian thing I have handed to a non-Christian and say, this is, this is worth, this is okay. If you're brave enough, this is not going to hurt your heart. I often go back to scenes from The Chosen. I haven't started on season two yet. I need to start on season two, but uh, it just is starting to come out. So but season one was yeah. so impactful, so good. So, Jesse, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. Um, and uh, yeah, go with God. Hey, thank you. Thank you, my brother. It's been fun to be with you here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.